And we're going to be journeying through God's word this morning, exploring that message of rebellion and redemption. And it is the most amazing story. The fact that, that here we sit in 2018, and as Christians, we believe that Jesus came, that he lived, and then he died, and he was raised from the dead. And it changes everything. It transforms who we are. It transforms our understanding of how these things work. But there's something so incredibly critical that takes place for that event to be significant, that takes place, and we have to look at the story as a whole. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I walk in and my kids are watching cartoons, and, and I couldn't tell you what it is, but as they're watching it, I begin to sit there and I did exactly the thing that I hate it when my mother-in-law does. I begin to ask them questions about something that was happening in front of them. Who's this guy? What's he doing? What's he up to? I thought he was a bad guy. Like two weeks ago, I saw this. Oh, no, no. And so my eight-year-old's pausing it. He's like, Dad, all right, let me explain this to you. He's a good guy pretending to be a bad guy to trick the bad guys so they can do a good thing. I'm like, all right, so hold on a second. And I'm, so I'm making him kind of recount this story. And what I failed to recognize is something happened like two or three seasons before that was shaping everything. And I hadn't watched it, and so I was completely lost and had no idea why the events unfolding were so incredibly significant to the storyline. So too in Christianity, if we skip over the beginning of our story, if we look and, and just pick up things at the resurrection, then we miss out on the significance of all those things God has done unfolding this grand narrative of redemption over the entirety of time. You see, the way the Bible records it is that in the beginning... In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is the picture. This is the scene. Everything is formless and void. God takes chaos, and in the midst of chaos, he interjects himself, and he begins to form, he begins to begin to fashion, and he does this out of nothing. And every time he creates something, and in every different movement that he has, we see the self-testimony of God come forward, and the statement is, And it was good. So God's doing this, and he's moving, and he's creating, and then it kind of comes to the height of God's creative endeavor. He moves, and he forms, and he fashions humanity. In Genesis 1, 26 and verse 27 tells us he created man and woman, and he created them in his own likeness, in his own image. And so he took man and woman, and he placed them in the midst of this garden, this complete and utter paradise where they wanted for nothing, where they needed nothing where they had God living among them. So this is the scene. They're able to walk and commune with God, and they're able to ask questions of him. But at some point along this process, it began to dawn in their minds that somehow God was not enough. See, in the midst of paradise, in the midst of wanting nothing, needing nothing, Adam and Eve bought into a lie. And the lie is this, that God alone is not enough. So buying into that lie, violating the character of God, Adam and Eve sinned against a holy God and are removed from the garden and they introduce rebellion into the story of perfection. And the remainder of scripture is a story of God moving systematically over and over and over again to bring redemption into our rebellious hearts. Genesis chapter 12 picks up and what we find is there's this guy named Abram now, Abram is, is not a man that we have any backstory on. He's not a guy that you look and say, of course, he's the likely candidate. But what we find in Genesis chapter 12 is that the call of God rests upon his life. And these are the words we read about him. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, Abram, I'm going to cause my blessing to rest upon you. 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what are we to take from this? What are we to read from this? It's not that God surveyed humanity and said, well, I've got Jesse over here. I've got Nick over there. And I've got this guy named Abram in the middle. I'm just going to pick him. You see, what makes him distinct and different is not something about who he is, but the blessing of God upon his life. And so what we see from the point of Abram, whose name will become Abraham, flowing all throughout history, is that the conduit of blessing from God to humanity flows through one family. And so God sends out Abram. So everywhere Abram goes, everyone that meets Abram, their repeated refrain would be, there's something unique and different about the way this guy lives his life, about the blessing of God upon his life, so that in meeting Abram and seeing his life, their lives too might be transformed. So everywhere he goes, the blessing of God rests upon him. And everyone that meets him is asking these same questions of, how, does it, how is this happening? What is different about him? What is unique about him? And these things solely rest upon God's redemptive work of blessing upon Abraham. Well, some hundreds of years later, we find that this family has, finds itself in Egypt. You see, they went to Egypt to avoid a famine, and they lived and they thrived in the land of Egypt. But while they were there, leadership changes began to take place. And there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know them, who didn't care anything for their story or their significance. And he placed them in slavery. And in slavery, they strove and they worked and they labored for the Egyptians. And God did the most amazing thing. You see, God took a rebel. God took a murderer. God took a man raised in the house of Pharaoh. And he sent him back to be God's agent of redemption and rescue for all those who were enslaved. God took a man named Moses. So he sends Moses back into the land of Egypt, and Moses begins to work to display God's might and God's majesty to over, overthrow Pharaoh's obstinance, to overthrow his resistance, and to bring him to the end of himself. Over and over again, God is displaying that he is so much greater than Pharaoh. Over and over again, God is displaying that he's so much greater than slavery. And over and over again, God is showing himself to be a God who redeems in spite of our rebellion. So God destroys the will of Pharaoh. He leads the people up out of the land. He does it as a column of fire by day and a cloud by night. And he's leading them to the land of promise, a land described as flowing with milk and honey. And so this is where they're headed, this land of inheritance, this land of promise. And over the course of this, you'll recognize if you read the book of Exodus, that this theme of rebellion and redemption continues to flow. They're pursuing along this path and they get about two and a half months into this journey. And what they say is, man, we should have never left Egypt. While we're in Egypt, we have plenty of food to eat. We have plenty of things to drink. They wanted to exchange following God manifested in a column of fire, in a cloud. They wanted to forsake him and give him up for slavery. God is always moving to bring redemption in the midst of our rebellion. So for 40 years, they wander. For 40 years, they begin to walk around. And for 40 years, God is forming and fashioning them into be his people, to display his character, to know his law, and to be a people who are agents of redemption, joining in the line of, line of Abraham, to be a blessing to those that bless them. And so as they approach the promised land, we recognize that Moses, their leader, dies. And he passes on this mantle of leadership to Joshua. And Joshua ferries the people over into the land, over into the promised land. 
And as they cross over the Jordan and into the promised land, what we see, as long as Joshua is alive, everything goes well. The people are following God. They're giving their hearts to him. But what we read are the tragic words of Judges 2, verses 11 and 12. After the death of Joshua, we read these words. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them and provoked the Lord to anger. So what do we see in the midst of this? As long as Joshua was alive, they were following him. Why? Because that's something they could understand. They could understand the central leader. They could understand what it was to follow him. But the moment he dies, they begin to allow rebellion to creep up and to manifest itself in their heart. And they become just like everybody around them. The amazing thing God does is in the midst of this rebellion, in the midst of these people becoming and allowing themselves to look and resemble like those around them, we pick up in verse 18 of chapter 2 in the book of Judges. It says, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of their, those who afflicted and oppressed them. But look at the tragedy in verse 19. The judge is working to produce redemption in them, but their own hearts desire for rebellion. It says, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The repeated refrain, if you're reading through the book of Judges, was in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So every man and every woman is their own moral compass. And so if you have some impetus, some strong leaning, you engage in that. You move in that direction. And, And they append to it. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in those days, there was no king. So when 1 Samuel picks up, we find that the people are tired of periodic judges. They're tired of seeing these warriors come along and rescue them and redeem them. They want something static. They want something that would just be consistent. And in their minds, that is a king. So the elders of Israel go to Samuel and they declare, we want a king. And Samuel says, you don't understand. It's a bad idea. You don't want a king. He said, we want a king. So Samuel goes to God. He says, these people, they're stiff-necked and they're stubborn. They want a king. They want to be just like everybody else. They want, they want to resemble them. They want to have a leadership structure that looks like them. Listen to God's statement in 1 Samuel 8, 7. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard that all they say to you. Why? For they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me as being a king over them. Their constant insistence upon a king wasn't a rejection of Samuel. It wasn't necessarily a rejection of the judges. It was a rejection of God and a rejection of God's kingship. Rebellion longed to rule and reign in their hearts. It longed to rule and reign in their hearts. So Samuel does his best. He tells them all the terrible ways that it will be for a king. He'll take your sons. He'll take your daughters. He'll take your land. He'll take your money. And what do they cry? We want a king. Rebellion reigns in the heart of man. 
God moves to bring redemption, his pursuing love to drive out the rebellion in our hearts. So Samuel goes out and he goes to find them their first king. And he does very much what you and I would do. He goes out and he says, where is the tallest? Where is the strongest? And who does he find? He finds Saul. And Saul is is heads and shoulders taller than everybody else. I mean, he looks like a king. And so he's made king and he's this warrior and everybody is following him. But, But lo and behold, we begin to recognize that Saul has a decidedly terrible character flaw. You see, Saul sees God and God's blessing in his provision as being nothing more than a given. And if you do this, that, and whatever, God's blessing will find you. That as long as we do the things in the order he wants to do them, it doesn't matter what our hearts look like. God is, is prone to move when we engage in the right behavior. So Saul saw God and his blessing as nothing more than a parlor trick, and he loses the kingdom. He loses the blessing of God. The Bible tells us that God's spirit left him. And so Samuel moves out and he begins to search for the man who would be king, the one who would take Saul's place. And he finds this guy named Jesse. And he he begins to ask Jesse to bring out his son so he can find the king. And Jesse's lining his sons up. And you can imagine kind of being there. He's like, oh, this guy is the king. He's, oh, man, if Saul is strong, this guy is so much stronger, so much mighter. Not that guy. His eyes are too close together. And so he begins to kind of move down through the line of, of of his sons from son to son to son. And every son that Jesse brings forward, God, he, Samuel hears God say, no, this isn't the one. Because the repeated refrain, and what we know is that God doesn't look as man looks. You and I look at the outward appearance of somebody. So today we see somebody well-dressed, we see someone disheveled, and we begin to make judgments about how they are and how their life is lived. God looks at the heart of man. And in finding a king for his people, he desired to find someone whose heart closely resembled his heart. So he finds David. And David begins to rule and reign, and he unites the kingdoms, and he expands the kingdom of Israel. And he is a man described as being a man after God's own heart. And so God issues to David this promise and this covenant in 2 Samuel seven sixteen. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. So what we see in this is that as David is moving through, God sets about the forever pattern of redemption to flow through David's line. And this becomes a critical piece of the story of bringing redemption into the world and into our own rebellion. Well, as kings do, David would die and his son Solomon would take up the mantle. If you read the story of Solomon, it's a life that is the tragic failure of wisdom. Solomon forsook God, and he began to buy into his own fame, his own notoriety. And then Solomon's son would see the kingdom split, and from there on, the story of the kings is the story, consistently, of rebellion and redemption. We see terrible kings who pursue their own ends, who pursue their own hearts, who pursue the the grandiose nature of their kingdom, and they rebel. They want nothing to do with God. They want their name to be great. And the God moves and we see a king come in whose heart belongs to the Lord. And God moves through that king to bring redemption amidst the rebellion of the entirety of the kingdom. 
And over and over again, we see this cycle move until God begins to issue stern warnings to his people. If you persist in rebellion, you're going to lose the land. Now notice this, the land, the promised land, it it has this decided link to their identity. They don't know who they are outside the land. So to hear this word and to hear you're going to lose the land will be to lose everything about who you are. The land is synonymous with their very identity. They can't understand themselves without it. But the rebellion persists. They disbelieve God. They believe that these warnings are meant to do nothing other than steer them back and he's never going to bring his promises to bear upon their life. And they lose the land. First, Israel is taken captive by the Assyrians and then Judah is taken captive by the Babylonians. The answer for their rebellion was God's swift discipline in order to provoke and bring about redemption. You say, how can that be? How can that be? You see, as they're living in exile, recognizing we're here because we rebel. We're here because we sinned against the holy God. We're here because rebellion, we desire it more than we desire strong fellowship with God. God sends a message to them through the prophet Jeremiah. And this is what it says, starting in verse 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Think about that. You've lost the land. I feel like all hope is gone. And you receive this word from God that says you have a future. And the future isn't in your rebellion. The future is in his redemption. He has a hope and he has a future. When is it going to happen? Verse 12 says, Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. And for 70 years, they remained in exile. For 70 years, they suffered the consequences of their rebellion and awaited the coming redemption of the Lord. As they come back into the land, they find it in ruins and they begin to build and they begin to uh, erect walls and they begin to give their hearts again to the Lord. But even amidst this endeavor, even in the midst of giving their hearts to the Lord, they begin to find themselves growing lackadaisical. They're, They're bored with these things. They're bored with this pursuit of God. And so they begin to get incredibly apathetic towards God. And so the last prophet that God sends to them in the Old Testament is a guy by the name of Malachi. So imagine this. They're in the midst of apathy. They're wondering, does serving God really amount to anything? Does he really care? Can we just emptily go through these movements and motions? Is he really just kind of concerned with the ends? He's not really not concerned with what it looks like as we get there. They know that they're in rebellion. They know that they're uh, disobeying God. And he utters these words to them in Malachi 1-2. He says, I have loved you. Such arresting words in the midst of rebellion. 
I can remember repeatedly rebelling and disobeying my parents. My dad would come in and catch me. I wish his words would have been, I have loved you, but it was, I have caught you, (laughs) says your dad. Think about that. In the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of their apathy, God's prompting to pull them back is not a continuation and a starting point of you have failed me, declares the Lord, but of his jealous love for them. I have loved you. I loved you in your rebellion. I loved you in your apathy. I love you still. Wooing them to move, not in an effort to avoid God's judgment, but out of a desire to continue to receive his love. See, after Malachi, for 400 years, there's nothing. There's no prophecy. There's no movement. There's no speaking of God. But God is this whole time moving and sovereignly operating and preparing to finally and fully bring redemption. As the New Testament rolls around, and the first character we recognize is a guy named John the Baptist who is born, and then his cousin Jesus is born soon after. And John the Baptist begins to minister, and, and, and the substance of his ministry is to call men and women to repent, to turn from their sinful ways, to turn and quit pursuing other things and to start pursuing God. And the first things we hear John the Baptist say about Jesus when he sees Jesus coming near to him is, behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. This is John the Baptist's declaration of who Jesus is. Jesus, who's born uh, to nobody's, no particular place of importance. Jesus, who we have no real steady and, and verbose account of him all the way up until he's 30. Jesus, John the Baptist says, will take away the sins of the world. I want to look at three things in terms of Jesus this morning. His teaching, his miracles, and his life. See, Jesus' teachings can be summed up with a simple phrase, love God, love people. Love God, love people. Jesus was asked at the end of the book of Matthew what the greatest commandment was, and his response is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see how Jesus attaches obedience and love of God to being visibly displayed amongst how we engage those around us. We can't separate the two. So how do we love God? We love God by obeying his commandments. We don't love God by doing the right things, but we love God by receiving his love, by being changed and transformed and allowing him to direct our lives. And what that results in is the fruit of obedience. We love God and demonstrate that by moving in obedience to him. We love people. We love God, we love people. You cannot love God and hate those that are invested with his image and his likeness. It's just not possible. And to say, I love God, I love worshiping God, but people are just taxing and I just hate them and I just don't want anything to do with them is contrary to the very teachings of Jesus. We show our love for people by sacrificing for them, by loving our enemies, by serving those that the world would deem unservable and unworthy of our service. Think about Jesus' miracles. Jesus is over and again 
pointing to the reality that he is God. The son, of, the son of God come in the flesh. He gives sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf. He makes the lame to walk just to prove he can. He walks on water. He raises the dead to life over and again. Jesus sets himself apart. He teaches and he moves and he operates in a way unlike anyone else. But then we turn and we look at his life. We don't really hear anything about him until he's about 30 and his ministry only lasts about three years. He lives in relative obscurity and every time Jesus has a really good crowd and everybody thinks this is the moment, this is the tipping point, this is when we kick Rome out, he gets rid of all of them. Every time when people are excited and they're ready to make him a king here on earth, he issues some teaching and they say, whoa, we can't follow you there. That is too radical. That's too hard. That's too difficult. So at the end of three years of ministry, Jesus ends up in a room taking what would be known as his last supper with 12 of his followers. And he's teaching them yet again what it looks like to serve. He's washing their feet. He's calling them to love one another. He's calling them to love the unlovable. One of his followers, Judas, Judas who is in that room, is so incredibly disgruntled with Jesus. He's so incredibly frustrated with his refusal to take power and his refusal to operate in the way that Judas believes that he should. That having already said in his mind to betray Jesus, he gets up out of the room and he storms out. Judas goes and he abandons Jesus. And the next time we see him, it's when he has come to betray him. The next scene we see that Jesus is gathered in the garden of Gethsemane with his 11 remaining disciples and he is praying and asking them to pray for him. He knows what's coming next. He knows that he is the answer for the rebellion of humanity. So he stands and from a distance he sees Judas coming, he sees clubs and he sees torches and he sees the mob coming for him. And as they gather up close, Judas wants to send the signal to those with him that this is Jesus. And so he walks up and he gives Jesus a kiss. He betrays him with a kiss. Jesus surrenders himself to the mob. They take him to the chief priest's house, beating him, mocking him, spitting on him as they go. So they get him in there, they throw a cloak over his head, they punch him, they kick him, they yell at him, they ridicule him, all the while calling out, prophesy who hits you, prophesy who's doing this. They're enraged. They're so angry that Jesus would dare to upset the apple cart of their life. Rebellion on display. The next morning they take Jesus and they bring him before the Sanhedrin and they find that he is guilty of blasphemy, and they want him to die. But they look around and they recognize they don't have the authority, the ability to put him to death on their own. So they bring him to the governor. They bring him to a man named Pilate. And they bring him before Pilate, and they say he is guilty in this way, and Pilate questions him, and Pilate recognizes pretty quickly this is not something he wants to be in the middle of. And so he finds an out. He says, I recognize this man is from Galilee, Herod of Galilee is here and he needs to go see him. And so Jesus is sent over to Herod's house and Herod begins to question him. Jesus doesn't respond. 
And so Herod sees no other option, but he sends Jesus back to Pilate. And so here's Pilate who thought he had answered the question and dealt with the Jesus issue is receiving him back. Now Herod has a problem. He can't upset the Jews. He can't anger them, but he also doesn't want to put Jesus to death. So he looks around and there's this guy who's been guilty of murder during an uprising, Barabbas. So in his mind, this makes sense. I've got this guy, Jesus, who's clearly already been beaten, who's already been mocked, who's already been ridiculed. He looks like he's had a rough night. He looks like he's suffered. And then I've got this guy here who killed people. Who wants him to be a neighbor? What's your name? My name's Barabbas. Are you guilty of anything? I killed a few people. Come on, you can move in next door. My mother-in-law moves out next week. (laughs) So Jesus and Barabbas, side by side, and Pilate says, which one do you want? And they all cry out in unison, give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer. Give us Barabbas. Pilate, recognizing there's nothing he can do, washes his hands of the matter and says, this isn't on me, this isn't on my head, this is on yours. And they say, so be it, upon us and upon our children for generation to generation. So Pilate has Jesus taken again. He has him beaten. He has him whipped. His soldiers take a bunch of thorns and they fashion them into a crown and they shove them down upon his head. They take Jesus out and they bring his cross over to him and they put it on his back and he begins to stumble and to walk, struggling for every step. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He knows what's coming. Rebellious humanity whom he formed, beating him, mocking him, rebelling against him. He stumbles and he falls, and a man named Simon of Serene is conscripted to carry the cross for Jesus. So Simon takes on the cross, he carries it up the hill for Jesus, lays the cross down, Jesus is laid on top of the cross, he's tied to it, and they take a nail and they drive the nail first through his right wrist, secondly through his left wrist. And they cross his feet and they drive a nail through his ankle. And then they take that cross and they hoist it up in the air and then they drop it in a hole, causing the full weight of Jesus' body to tug against the nails in his wrists, the nails in his feet. Think about this. Jesus mocked, Jesus beaten, Jesus ridiculed, suffering in anguish. And what is his words to those that watch? Father, Forgive them. They know not what they do. The words on the lips of Jesus are a balm and a curative to our penchant for rebellion. Forgiveness afforded us by Jesus. For six hours, Jesus hangs in anguish before eventually surrendering up his spirit, crying out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is is finished, and he dies. If you're a follower of Jesus Jesus at this point, there is no moment lower. His disciples thought it was the end. The women at the cross thought it was the end. The enemies thought they had finally defeated him. The problem of Jesus had been answered. He is dead. He is no more. 
So his body's taken down off the cross. It's entered into a borrowed tomb and a large stone is rolled in the way to make sure that nobody could come and steal his body. This is Friday. So his body laid in the tomb. The disciples gathered together terrified, wondering if they would be next, if they would be recognized, if they would be killed, if this path that Jesus had set them on would lead to their deaths as well, thinking he's dead. Sunday morning rolls around, and two women, they want to go and they want to see the tomb. They loved Jesus. They're heartbroken at his death. And as they approach the tomb, they see the stone is rolled away, and they begin to to race forward, and then they're interrupted by angels who ask this question, arresting their progress. Why do you look for the living among the dead? It makes no sense to them. He's in the tomb. He's down there. He's dead. He's been wrapped. He's been covered. We have to see him. Someone has stolen him. But they ask the question, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? And they have this bold declaration that changes everything for us. He is risen. He's risen. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead changes everything for us. Our penchant and our movement towards rebellion need not be the way of life. Why? Because he's risen. It's not that his manner of life calls us to be good people, but the manner of his death and his resurrection changes our very existence. It changes our rebellion and introduces into it redemption. He is risen. The apostle Paul offers these amazing words to us. Describing the process that Jesus went through, he says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's this temptation to see amongst ourselves good people becoming better who don't really need God. People apathetic towards God, that he's a good guy and he'll figure it out. But we recognize the way scripture characterizes and displays this at the right time. While we were yet ungodly, Christ died for us. Do you catch this? God did not move to redeem you on your best day. He did not move to redeem you when you were a good person heading to be a perfect person. God's movement founded before the foundation of the earth was to redeem you even in your sin. Even in your sin. He goes on and he says, Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God displays his amazing love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The story of rebellion and redemption does not have to continue for me. It does not have to continue for you. Why? Because he is risen. The risen Christ bids all men to come and be saved. The risen Christ bids me to live my life changed and transformed in that while I was lost and mired in my sin, the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ is that he did not stay in the tomb, but he is risen. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. The grave is not the end. The cross is not the end. The risen Jesus, overcoming our rebellion, leading towards our redemption, forgiveness of sins. Father, I pray for those in this room who have yet to submit themselves to cry out to you for salvation. That they would take an opportunity today to do that. To get their heart right with you. To cease living in rebellion and indifference towards you. And to start living in redemption. In that while they were yet sinners. The death of Christ making them alive. Uniting them to you. And Father, I pray for those who are already Christians and believers in this room. God, that they would walk each day in the reality of the resurrection. Not seeking to be better people worthy of your love, but seeking to be loved people living in the reality of the redemption of the cross of Christ. They've not done something to receive your love, but you interjected your love and redemption into the story of their rebellion. God, we pray these things and submit them to you in the powerful name of Jesus, him who reigns and does so forevermore. Amen.